Two Guys Talking Nostalgia Engine is here. And we need your help. Two Guys Talking has begun stockpiling reviews of great, classic movies, and we want to know what you want us to review. Access twoguystalking.com now and tell us which classic movies on DVD and Blu-ray we should put into the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review crosshairs and help us fuel the internet's best repository for engaging, nostalgic feature film reviews. Access twoguystalking.com and click any one of the Nostalgia Engine pictures. Tell us which movies you want right now. Action, horror, comedies, even the occasional rom-com. Access to guystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. The Nostalgia Engine. Ride in nostalgic style while you listen. Twoguystalking.com. Have you ever had the feeling of being watched? Hidden eyes following you, a cold chill crawling up your spine, the hairs on the back of your neck standing straight up. Do you know what that is? It's fear. It's fear. Fear is the most basic human emotion tied into our instinct to survive. Fear gives us the means to overcome great odds or cripple us with paralyzing dread. dread. But fear can also entertain. <laughs> Turn off all the lights, lock your closet door, and ignore the sounds from beneath your bed. It's time for Two Guys Talking Horror. When it comes to tracing the roots of the horror genre, one need not look any further than their local library. The foundation of everything we know and love about horror can be found in the pages of some of the greatest literary works. It's also no surprise that most of the classic horror films are based off of those outstanding works. If not for the imaginations of long-dead writers, we would not be blessed with the films of the early 20th century. And if not for the brilliance of those early filmmakers, we would not have the likes of Freddy, Jason, or Michael on our movie screens. Literature feeds into film, and film feeds into literature. Inspiration, imagination, and terror. Mmm, a recipe horror fans can savor. Step up to the buffet of butchery, as we serve a double helping of horrific history on Two Guys Talking Horror. A crash course in horror. Hello everybody, I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, your host. And I'm Jason Contini. Yes, Jason Contini. Ah, what can I say about this man that hasn't been said on the internet and on bathroom walls and things like that? Uh, we've known uh, each other almost 15 years now, right? Uh, yeah, we're we're almost pushing uh, double decades here. Ooh, uh, yeah, it's uh, we're we're friends, we're family, we are confidants, we are inseparable. We're also big fans of horror, along with every other genre. Uh, luckily enough, even though we both love horror, there's uh there's a nice little divide between us. We don't see eye to eye on everything, which I think has kept this uh, the, this friendship uh, as spicy as ever. 
But enough of my rambling. I know everything I need to know about Jason Contini. Jason, tell everybody listening a little bit about yourself. Oh, wow. Where do I start? Uh, do I start like Steve Martin in The Jerk? You know, I was born a poor black child. Or do I start like Oliver Twist? You know, I was born. Well, I, I, I grew up. I, I preferred Steve Martin to oh, Oliver okay. Twist. But right. how about this? Let's just say uh, local boy, correct? Yep. St. Louis, boy. born and bred. Born and raised in St. Louis. Um, and uh, yeah, I got into theater at a very young age. And so as a result of that, you know, that pulled me into uh, a lot of the arts in general, which drawing and, and sequential storytelling and painting and all that. And that got me interested, I think, into comic books. And and from there, it just kind of spiraled, you know, movies and theater and comic books, and they all kind of coalesced together. So, uh, yeah, I've kind of been stuck on this stuff since since I was little. I mean, I think, I don't recall this personally, but I think I have been told that one of the very first movies I ever watched as an infant was the 1931 Frankenstein with ah. Boris Karloff, which maybe maybe that explains my absolute love and passion for the old Universal horror films. I don't know. But I've been into this stuff for a long time, and and I'm uh, very active in the theater and film community here in, in the Midwest area, and have even done a couple of uh, horror films, in fact, also with my, my wonderful host here. Oh, please. No, we don't need to talk about that. Oh, I think that there's plenty to talk about with that. Nick and I did a film, oh, this was probably about 13 years ago, something like that, uh, called Killers by Nature. It's your basic micro-budget, <laughs> underground kind of horror film, but I think it's something that audiences could have fun watching, if, if you can find a copy of it. <laughs> All I can say is God bless being young and hungry. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, thank you, Jason, for letting everybody know a little bit about you. Now they can feel comfortable listening to you ramble as much as I do. We have a lot to get to, but first, a little bit of housekeeping. The Versus Machine. Now, here on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, there is a program called The Versus Machine. and It's a pretty ingenious program. They basically take one incarnation of something and compare it to its adaptation, whether it be a book into a film or a, a video game into a film, uh, a, a play into a movie, anything like that. Uh, well, they've they've actually done something horror-related. Stephen King's classic work, The Shining. They have actually, com they're comparing the book to the Stanley Kubrick, Jack Nicholson film. Big differences there. But I'm not even going to get into that because it's all covered on the Versus Machine. So if you're interested in Stephen King, The Shining, Kubrick, Jack Nicholson, anything like that, my suggestion is you head on over to the Versus Machine and you give it a listen. Note-taking is allowed, boys and ghouls, so I hope you have a pen or pencil handy. It's time to hit the books during this episode, A Crash Course in Horror on Two Guys Talking. Nowadays, horror can be found anywhere. But once upon a time, it was very hard to come by. So the best way to start off a crash course in horror is start from the beginning. And the beginning is literature. Yeah. We have to go back, way, way back to the classics. And we're not talking even the classic literature of the 20th century. We're talking before that. Oh, yeah. Me, I like going back 
to the grim fairy tales. And that's really, I think, where horror as a genre and as a category onto its own, I think, really kind of starts, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I agree, because the, the funny thing about it is is that today, especially today's audience, has been <laughs> spoon-fed a watered-down version of these stories. If you actually look at the original stories, these stories were filled with murder and mayhem. The whole wicked stepmother, that's a creation. In these original stories, they were mothers and fathers. These were the actual biological parents of these children, and they're putting them in danger on purpose. But of course, you don't you don't want that. Oh no, I can't believe that a, a an actual parent would ever put their child in danger. So you have to turn. You have to create the stepmother, stepfather persona. Well, you can't sell tickets to an eight year old for something that is you know. <laughs> so you've got it. You've got to adapt it for the audience that you're pushing. Unfortunately, because of certain properties and, and movies and, and TV, that has watered down these properties mm. so much, and that's all we see of them right. anymore. Well, and the great thing about it is, is these original stories, these were these were told to little kids for them to behave. Don't do this, or else a witch is going to come out of the woods and she's going to gobble you up. All right. I'm sure back in the 1600s, if my parents told me that if I wasn't good, a witch was going to come and grab me, I'd be terrified. Yeah, they were essentially teaching morals to these kids. Right. And they were they were they were almost like lessons, almost like little morality plays. Little morality plays. And now they're just a- animated features. <laughs> but if we're talking about classic literary works, Grim Fairy Tales is great. But some of the best, some of the ones that I remember reading and just, just and even though they're dated, just feeling just bone chilling, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Which is, I think, my second favorite book of all time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I've read that book, I don't know, about five or six times. I mean, it's just fantastic. And not even, not even so much on the, on the strictly horror level. There's just some really amazing character development in that. I mean, you can you can really study the psychology of people. And it and it pertains just as much today as it did right. when it was originally written, which is just so amazing about that book mm. that it just can can stand the test of time like that. Well, if you talk about Mary Shelley, you also have to talk about Bram Stoker. Yep, got to talk about Stoker. Because Stoker you created created Dracula. Dracula was created. Frankenstein was created. It's no wonder that these rich pieces of literature were then transformed into film later on but we we can't gloss over some of the other greats of the classical era robert louis stevenson yep even hg wells you look at hg wells a lot of people say ah no he's more sci-fi ah there's a fine line between science fiction and horror and i think hg wells definitely walked that line i think he did too you know somebody else that that often gets forgotten i think and pushed to the side in this discussion is gaston larue Hmm. gaston larue i don't think gets gets his due in the horror community and i think that's in part due to andrew lloyd webber Andrew Lloyd Webber took Phantom of the Opera and turned it into this beautiful Broadway love story, which I enjoy the show. I do. But that's not the book. There's a lot of people today that wouldn't wouldn't realize that that what we have on stage is an interpretation of this original work. Correct. Correct. You know, I mean, that's a that's a character that is portrayed to us as as this forlorn kind of lovesick uh, misunderstood monster, mm. boy. In that book, he's brutal. Uh, he's he's pretty monstrous in that thing, and oh, yeah. I, you know, it's it's. But as a result, I think Gaston Larue would be right in there with Shelley and Stoker, and he doesn't get his due. And he needs to. 
He absolutely needs to. Petition. LaRue for life! <laughs> well, again, if we're also talking about the greats, <laughs> there's always that, that camp. There's the Edgar Allan Poe fans, and there's the H.P. Lovecraft fan. I appreciate both of them. Some of their works are, are, are just amazing, and some are just plain weird. It's completely strange. Uh, a lot of people coin it as almost the old Elvis Beatles debate. You're either a Beatles fan or you're an Elvis fan. Well, Coke or Pepsi. Yeah, but sorry, I like I like Elvis and I like the Beatles. I'll drink a Coke and I'll drink a Pepsi if I have to. And it's the same thing. It's the same way with me for Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. What about you? Are you are you a Poe? Are you a Poe supporter? Are you a Lovecraft fan? Or um, are you a little both? As a horror fan, I kind of feel ashamed to even mention this out loud, but I'm going to say it, and it's going to be out there forever. At this point in time, I have never actually read Lovecraft. Wow. Uh, he's one of the authors that has just kind of slipped through my fingers, and I've just never gotten around to reading it. So, by default, I'm a Poe fan, <laughs> because I've read quite a bit of Poe, and uh, and I really love his stories. Now, I know the basic ideas and the basic stories behind Lovecraft, and it seems like something that would be very up my alley. But it also kind of, from what I understand, seems like it would be very dense, and I, I don't know if that is something that would play to me or not. Lovecraft is not for everybody. Uh, I, I actually prefer when people take his work and then reinterpret it. Some of the films that are based off of his works, modernized, explained a little bit better, a little bit uh, got a little bit more meat on it. He's an acquired taste. Lovecraft is an acquired taste. <laughs> Now, we've talked about some of the classic greats, but let's talk a little bit about the modern greats, some of, uh, some of the best uh, writers, some of the best creators of the last 100 years. When I think of books that make me want to wet myself, I think of Richard Matheson. Yeah. I yeah. Am Legend is by far one of the creepiest. That is a chilling tale. Oh, don't forget Hell House. Oh, <laughs> Hell House, and and the great thing about it is that both of those both of those books were then later on made into films. Some films better than others, and they grabbed people's attention enough. We got to make a movie out of this. Shirley Jackson is Ooh. one that is one of my all time favorites. There's the obvious choice with with Shirley Jackson of The Haunting of. Hill House, mm -hmm. which of course was turned into what I think might be the greatest ghost story movie of all time, The Haunting. The Haunting, yes. The original. Um, the original Haunting, yes. yes. It's such a chilling story. But, you know, again, a lot of people tend to to look over some of her other work, like The Lottery, mm. which, you know, there's there's nothing supernatural connected with it. But, you know, you're talking about but a story. But it is horrific. It is very horrific. You're talking about a story where a community comes together at certain period of intervals, you know, in their in their existence, and they choose from a lottery to stone someone in their town to death. A sacrifice. A we sacrifice. must sacrifice to the gods for our and, our, uh, our crops. And, and, you know, different kinds of population control ideas and that, which, of course, then ends up spilling over into films like Wicker Man. Oh, yes. Uh, and whatnot. But, I mean, the lottery, you know, it's another one that, that often gets overlooked, and, boy, it's, it's just chilling mm. that real people do this and that that's that's one of those things where real horror silence of the lambs red dragon hannibal type thing real horror nothing supernatural about what these people do these are just people doing horrible things to other people right and that is also in my mind horrific oh absolutely well you also have uh william peter blatley <laughs> come on yeah the exorcist a story 
part of the story, the original story of The Exorcist. It's actually taken from two separate cases. One case was involving a female. The other case was involving a little boy. And that little boy actually lived in D.C. and then was moved here to St. Louis. Election Brothers Hospital. Exactly. And and the bits and pieces from both of those cases were then taken and <laughs> put together in by far a frightening book and an even more frightening film, I must say. And the list goes on. I mean, we, you've got... You've got authors like Anne Rice. Yeah. Anne Rice, The Vampire Chronicles. Uh, I remember reading Interview with a Vampire. I remember seeing the movie. That's where it kind of stopped for me. But yeah. I know the, the the rest of the world was enthralled. See what I did there? Vampires enthralled. Whoa. Uh. <laughs> uh, I know the rest of the world was very enthralled by, by her, her works. The world is also enthralled with people like Dean Koontz. I personally have never read any Dean Koontz. I've read a little bit of Koontz. Some of his stuff is good. Some of it's a little. Uh... <sighs> that's, okay. That's, and that's what I'll. <laughs> and that's how I'll leave it. Dean Koontz uh, again, like Lovecraft, an acquired taste. <laughs> Talking about <laughs> acquired taste. Yeah, you got to mention Stephanie Meyer. Her. You, you have to mention her because even though I don't enjoy her work. It was influential. Yeah, it, you can't it, you can't uh, you can't disregard the the impact that she has had on the genre, whether that's a good impact or a bad impact. You can't you can't ignore it. And who knows? Maybe one day we'll actually do a, a an episode of Two Guys Talking Horror that delves into the Twilight mythos. Uh, if somebody puts a gun to my head, I I do understand that Twilight Twilight was a thing. It was a phenomenon, uh, but that's teeny bopper horror for me it it kind of neutered in my mind the the genre for a little while and you know what we will we will spend some time we will do an entire episode right now i'll call it the teeny bopper horror craze may not be that the name of the show but keep your eyes and your ears open folks we will delve deep into the sparkly wonderness that is twilight in an upcoming episode i will tell you one thing Teeny Bopper Horror does have a voice, and that voice is R.L. Stein. Yes. Not only Teeny Boppers, but also children, kids, tweens, whatever you want to call them nowadays. I did not read Goosebumps. I will say that. I did not read Goosebumps. I did read his Fear Street novels, which were geared more towards the the young adult, the teens, when I was a teenager, and I'll tell you what, I, I really dug him. I, I, they, he didn't water it down. He didn't talk stupid to his audience, and it was, a, it was a, a damn fine read. I read a few of those when I was younger, and, yeah, I enjoyed them too. And then you know, you've got uh, more recent authors. Uh, some might not consider him a horror author. I don't consider him total horror, but he has horror elements in his in his books. But Jim Butcher. Yeah, I think that he's one of those guys that can, pardon the expression, straddle the the genre line. Um, <laughs> I like that. He 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 will straddle that that line between the genres in the sense that something like Doctor Strange would straddle the line between superhero and horror comic. Technically, Harry Potter could straddle that line. They are witches. They after are all. witches and wizards. And there are werewolves and, werewolves and all trolls. kinds of other creatures. Yeah. So would I consider Harry Potter horror? No. no. Would I consider Doctor Strange horror? No. But Jim Butcher certainly straddles that same line. Then there's the granddaddy of them all. The master of modern horror. 
Stephen King, who has given me many a sleepless night with a lot of his earlier works. Uh, I haven't I haven't read a lot of the, the, the newer stuff, but all the old stuff, all the stuff from the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, hoo-hoo-hoo, man. Yeah, he uh, his everything that I have read of him, I have enjoyed. Uh, obviously, some more than others, to the point that outside of Larry McMurtry, he's probably the author I have read the most mm. of. I, you know, I remember when I read it the first time, and boy, there are sequences in that that even just thinking about it to this day still are just the single scariest moments I've ever actually read in a book. I mean, there are just chilling things in there. Ironically enough, I found it was it, it was scary in certain parts, but the book, and still to this day, and, and maybe it has something to do with the first time that I actually read the book, Salem's Lot. Oh, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the vampire genre, and I remember watching the film, the made for TV movie that was done, uh, directed by Toby Hooper, uh, same man who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I remember loving that movie and i'm like oh yeah this is a great this is a great film Ooh, scary then i read the book which is nothing like the movie in a good way the book is so much better i'm ticked off now because now i can never watch the old salem's lot movie because it it angers me but when i'm reading this book the first time i actually picked up salem's lot i was living down south in a small little uh, podunk town of Piedmont, uh, my uh, grandmother had a little bit, of, a little, a little piece of land outside of town. And at night, <laughs> unless there were stars and a moon, there's no light outside. As dark as it can get. And she had these giant bay windows in her kitchen. So here I am. I'm reading Salem's Lot. My back is to these giant bay windows in the oh, middle of the night. Oh, that's perfect recipe for uh... <laughs> And I'm I can't even remember what part it is I'm reading, but all of a sudden bugs, night bugs, moths start tapping on the glass behind me and freak <laughs> me the hell out to the point where I I I got up, walked around the table, sat there, tried to read, but now I'm being distracted because now I'm looking out into the darkness. And I'm expecting glowing red eyes and a hand to come up and ask to be let in. Let me in, Nick. Let me in. Yeah. Stephen King, uh, I I love you, but I hate you. (laughs) Was there anything else that I forgot? Uh, Great literary works? You know, the only other thing that I can think of is something that, and and some people don't even remember this, but I think a lot of people from our generation grew Mm -hmm. up with these books. They were called The Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, oh. and there were three of them. And I, I believe you can still get them in stores. I believe that the books are still released. But I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, somewhere around there, parent groups and teacher groups and, and whoever they are. They, the faceless um, they. Yeah, the faceless they. They started a campaign to get those books banned. And it was primarily because of the illustrations. Hmm. And I can't uh, recall now off the top of my head who the artist was, but his work was so good and was so terrifying and creepy. I can understand why parents would would have an issue with it. On the other hand, it's just a book. Chill out, people. Yeah, those books and those stories, I mean, we're, we're talking some really classic 
classic archetypes of horror reused in new ways in these books with just some amazing art. And I've found these books a few times really? at used bookstores. Uh, there's a few in town, and I've just actually picked up a hardcover copy myself that reprints all three with the original art. Ooh. You can get the original art if you dig and if you look for it. And, and these books are great just in general, but it's the art. The art is some of the most disturbing and creepy art that you will ever see mm. in the horror genre. It's just great. I highly recommend checking I'm going it out. To have to, I'm going to have to find those because I remember reading them when I was younger and God knows what happened to them. Just vanished from my library. But I'll tell you what, we will, we will hunt down where you can find these great books and we will put links down in the show notes at our website. Speaking of detailed links and information, we'd like to hear from you. What did we miss in our list of classic literary horrific adventures? Uh, was there something on there that you'd like us to talk more about? Was there a specific author, a specific book you would like us to delve further into? Let us know by going over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Go on over to the right-hand side, fill out that short web form, and let us know what you think. Give us your opinion. <laughs> Between you and me, Jason, we love books. We appreciate books. But sadly, there's some people who uh, who don't enjoy them. Or even worse, don't have time for them. So what's the easy cheat for wanting to see a story that's in a book but not read the book? Watch the movie. Watch the movie. Because most of the great works have been made into film. Some of them multiple times. Multiple times, yes. And when you talk about film, this is a crash course in horror for people. you got to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to the silent era of film. We're talking the end of the 1800s going into the 1900s. Films like... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The silent the, the silent version. Before sound, before color, there was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. My One of my personal favorite stories, my personal favorite film, depending on uh, who's doing it and how they're interpreting it. I love the story of Jekyll and Hyde. The, the, the splitting of the good and the bad personalities. It's, it's always been a, a subject that's intrigued me. Maybe one day, hopefully, I can uh, actually do my interpretation, my version of a Jekyll and Hyde story. You know, they've, uh, they've uh, during the silent era, adapted a number of great stories or works of literature into silent films at that time. Uh, Frankenstein was done by a, a German uh, company. There's also things like The Gollum, which uh, did a great job of, you know, adapting an old, I believe it's an old Jewish folklore. Yes. Um, that was adapted. But my, my personal favorite of all of them, uh, of all the silent era even, would be the cabinet of, of Dr. Caligari. Absolutely. By far an amazing piece of film, even to today's standard. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, you not even just technically, although there is that. There are some things in it that are just wild. I mean, the sets and the art direction is out of this world in that film. There is a twist at the end of the film, and I won't give it away for anybody who, out there who has not actually seen the film, but it is... It is a twist that I personally didn't even see coming. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a twist. But it's a twist on the level of 
early M. Night Shyamalan, you know, when M. Night actually <laughs> knew what he was doing and was actually producing good films with great twists. <laughs> uh, no, there's a, there's a hell of a twist, and like I said, I won't spoil it, but I highly recommend going out and seeing it. And it's just, boy, the performances in it are so great, and yes, they're a little over the top and a little stagey, but for the era, the performances are so understated, which is so ahead of its time. Right. Another great thing, a little little fun fact, a little FF for you. Back in the, the 1920s in Germany when the film was being made, there was only a certain amount of electricity that could be used. We, we know from, from doing films, oh, you need a lot of lights. You need a lot of lights. One of the cheats that, uh, that the production did for the, the, the cabinet was they actually drew the shadows onto the sets which gives the film an even more surreal feel to it to where you're watching it and you're wondering is the person making this film absolutely crazy or is he brilliant it almost makes it feel like you are actually watching a nightmare mm. on screen <laughs> some of the other greats from the silent era let's not forget the uh, hunchback of notre dame uh lawn yes. cheney the Great. Uh, you've also got The Phantom of the Opera. Again, Lon Chaney. I was going to say, you just talk about Silent Era and you talk about Lon Chaney. Lon I Chaney, mean, boom. You know, the man created the the movie monster. Yes. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, this guy was everything that Boris Karloff and Vincent Price and Christopher Lee and Robert England ever wanted to be. <laughs> He's the granddaddy of them all, and just damn near every single film that he made in the 20s is brilliant, and he is brilliant in all of them. Absolutely. The, the, the world of makeup effects would not be where it is today if it wasn't for... Lon Chaney. The man of a thousand faces. To wrap up our classic silent era, well, you got to save the best for last. Second best, because like we said, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the best silent era horror film. But Nosferatu is Ooh. damn close. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good one. There's some... There are some shots in that and some lighting in that that is just amazing for the era, especially. Yeah, I mean, early days of actual filmmaking, you, you, you still kind of look at it and like, how did they do that? Yeah, there's a couple of shots in there that, that you know, you could figure out how to do it now. But you think about what they had at their disposal at the time, and you just got to wonder, how in the world did they pull off some of these shots with the, the technology that they had at their disposal in 1922? Let's get in to the meat. The thing that I know we've been chomping at the bed waiting to get to this. The Universal Monsters. My favorite. My favorite, too. Absolute favorite from, from any era, including current. I mean, I love me some Freddy and Jason, but give me the classic Universal Monsters, man. There's, there's nothing better than Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Just, just being allowed to, to go at it and do their thing. And let's not forget Lon Chaney Jr., the Lon only Chaney one, Jr. the only one of them, to actually be able throughout the series of films to play Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, and the Mummy. He played all four at various times. Definitely following in his father's footsteps. Absolutely. Now, when you think about the classic Universal films, you think of the theatrics of it all considering 
that Dracula was the first of the Universal monsters to be put on film. And speaking of theatrics, Bella Lugosi played the character on Broadway very successfully. Is Dracula, is the 1931 Dracula a great film? No, not really. It, it's not a great film. Actually, Bela Lugosi is probably the best thing about that film, his his presence, his delivery, almost as if everybody else didn't really know how to deal with the subject matter. A lot of the action happens off camera and slash off stage since the movie is an adaptation of the stage play. But if we're talking about the classics, ah, I'm sorry, Frankenstein beats Dracula for me. Uh, James Whale. Yeah. A brilliant, brilliant director. Personally speaking, I think Bride of Frankenstein, the sequel, the the unwanted sequel, is a far better film than the than the original. I I absolutely agree with you. In fact, I you know I think that there are two camps of of people when they think about horror films in general, and I think that there's the camp that says that Exorcist is the greatest horror film of all time, and Bride of Frankenstein is second, and mm. then I think there's the camp that says Bride of Frankenstein is the greatest horror film, and Exorcist is second. Bride of Frankenstein, I think it's it's certainly the first sequel to surpass the original, mm. um, yes. and yes. and one of the few to actually do that. But it's just a, an amazing, an amazing piece of work by by such a team that was just putting everything they had into it, and and creating even new characters that aren't necessarily referenced anywhere else. I mean, Doctor Pretorius is one of the greatest <laughs> film characters of all time, and uh, and is so much fun to watch. And well, and another thing about the Bride of Frankenstein is it's one of the first horror films that actually married the horror and comedy aspect there are parts of bride of frankenstein where you will find yourself chuckling at and then cringing right afterwards it was probably in my mind the first dark comedy slash horror film ever created sure i could see how that would be be viewed as in that in that way Another thing that you have to think about when you're looking at the the Universal years is the Universal Studios gave us the greats, the big ones. They gave us Dracula. They gave us Frankenstein. They gave us The Bride. They gave us The Mummy, Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Invisible Man. Who who else am I forgetting? Uh, they gave us another another version of The Phantom of the Opera, another version of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. They gave us some that that aren't quite as recognizable you know from the literary world or even from the from from the film world some of the more you know the underrated monsters if you will mm. things like cheney's man-made monster which is a great little film and and from what i understand from what little reading i've done on that on that particular film was designed to be a new universal monster and the film just didn't take off mm. and it didn't uh it didn't get the same attention the metaluna mutant from ah. uh, this island earth which is now often considered to be one of the universal monsters you know then there's films like the black cat and some of their more supernatural themed horror films often starring lugosi or karloff of course or both or both and some of the early uh, the, i would look at the films like the black cat as uh, early precursor to a movie like seven or saw absolutely Absolutely. You know, it's it's human beings doing despicable and horrible things to other human beings. 
Now, Universal Studios wasn't the only game in town back in the day. There was also other studios out there. Let, and who could forget some of the great films that came out of RKO, produced and written by the great and, depending on who you talk to, uh, sometimes uh, overrated Val Luton. Val Luton. You know this, Nick. Val Luton is one of my all-time favorite producers. And, you know, there are those that would argue that he actually directed many portions of the films that he produced because all of his films have the same tone and the Mm -hmm. same feel, even though there are various different directors, which is kind of strange. So obviously he had some sort of hand in it, but he was the master at building suspense and using light and shadows to convey the story that he was trying to tell. And he was doing all of this on a budget far, far, (laughs) far less than what the actual granddaddy, Mr. Hitchcock, was working with. You know, Hitchcock had all the toys and all the bells and whistles to play with to do with his stuff. Val Luton did not. Almost one could even say that they were borderline independent films of the era. And some of them, uh, The Leopard Man, has one of the creepiest moments. Check that movie out, absolutely. Uh, there's There's a moment there where someone is banging on a door and a family member is inside just staring at the door and this person is banging and banging because the leopard man is coming to get them and it just builds and builds and eventually they scream and it's silence and then this pool of blood just starts to dribble in underneath the door and it's just for the era it's absolutely amazing and just oh very creepy Luton is definitely the the master the original master of turning something out of nothing. You never see what he is showing you. It's always, it's like you said, it's always about the shadow. Uh, I would actually say that Val Luton is the creator of the jump scare. Oh, the, I could see that. If you if think about it, and this is not a spoiler for anybody, but uh, 1942's The Cat People, there is a scene. Our, our heroine is walking along a tunnel, and all you can hear is you, the sound of her footsteps. And then you hear the sound of another pair of footsteps behind her, but you don't see who they are. Now she notices the footsteps, and she starts turning around to look as she's walking, and she's not seeing anybody, but she's hearing the footsteps. Then she stops, and the footsteps stop with her. And then she starts walking again. The footsteps start walking again. She starts running. The footsteps start running, and then all of a sudden, the footsteps stop. So now she's confused. But what happened to the footsteps? And now she's patiently standing there waiting for something to happen. And then, oh, my God, the bus pulls up to pick her up. That's a jump scare. For 1942, that's a jump scare. Yeah, I can see that. And from that point on, in my mind, the jump scare was born. (laughs) Now, some of the other great RKO Val Luton films that I have to mention are, and I'll mention these in succession, Isle of the Dead, The Body Snatcher, and Bedlam. All three of those films starring Boris Karloff. And you know, The Body Snatcher, I think, is probably the best. Yes, I the, agree. Of the Val Luton Definitely films. Agree. I think it's, it's, the, 
it's the top, it's the pinnacle, it's the bar. I think it's what that they were building to, and I don't think that Val Luton was ever going to be able to match that or top that. The Body Snatcher is just um, also with Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi is. There's some great, great scenes with great dialogue between Lugosi and Karloff in that film. And I would even say that probably Body Snatcher is maybe one of the ten greatest horror films, certainly pre-1970. I don't know if I would exclude it from any top ten list. It's it's really, really fantastic. That is what I attribute Val Luton's career to, is actually giving us a Boris Karloff that is known for not just Frankenstein's monster, but so much more. Certainly an influential uh, name in the horror genre and, and often overlooked. And that's where we ask you, what's your favorite classic monster? Is it something from the Universal Studios era, or is it something uh, more RKO Val Luton-esque? Head on over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Jump on over to the right-hand side, fill out that little web form, and let us know what you think. Or try our Twitter presence, at 2GTHorror. We're running a little bit long here, Jason, and uh, <laughs> I have a feeling that that's how things are going to be with the when, when you put the two of us in a room to talk about su- such wonderful things like Boris Karloff and Val Luton. We can certainly drone, that's for sure. We definitely, <laughs> definitely can. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Things in 1982 were a lot more simple. BMX bikes, the Versailles apartment complex in Schaumburg, Illinois, the sweet, innocent kiss of Andrea Schaefer, and of course, a little film from a man named Steven Spielberg called E.T. Science fiction, the detail of a broken but still together family, the relationships that were made when you were 12, ones that are never again truly realized. It seems a lot heavier than most remember, but all of these things and more await you in the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Steven Spielberg's E.T. 1982 on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Check it out now at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. The Feedback Gauntlet. What podcast will offer you a hundred bucks cash to tell people what you think? There isn't another one out there. And it's time for you to tell us what you think right now. Check out twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet to jump into the Two Guys Talking Feedback Gauntlet. We're looking for feedback about any program we have on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Follow the short instructions at twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet and you're entered instantly for a hundred bucks cash. What's this? Cash? For telling people what you think? Yes, cash. For telling people what you think. Twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet. True Blood fan? Don't miss the Fangbanger Podcast with me, David Carite, and Mike Wilkerson from Two Guys Talking. Concise, point-by-point episode review each week. Check it all out at fangbangerpodcast.com. Fangbangerpodcast.com. 
Being an outcast isn't something that all of us feel every now and then. It's been the subject of stories forever. Take, for example, the X-Men comic book series. In 1963, we were introduced to a number of characters that were different. Super strength, plasma bolts emitted from eye sockets, the ability to read minds, a man that could fly with angel's wings. In 2000, we were introduced to the X-Men on the silver screen. There, Professor X would teach not only his mutant students, but us, as viewers of film, what it meant to be a mutant. There have been more X-Men movies, and even another coming up. But where can you find the best discussion of all of the X-Men movies? Be sure to check out the X-Men Perspective Review Series at twoguystalking.com forward slash X-Men. Bullet point based detailed discussion from fans, fanboys, and mutants just like you. Join in the homo superior discussion at twoguystalking.com forward slash X-Men. That's the number two, guystalking.com forward slash X-Men. Welcome back, everybody, to Two Guys Talking Horror. We are smack dab in the middle of a crash course in horror. We've talked about some of the great works in literature. We've talked about the early days of cinema. Now we're getting into the crazy stuff, man. We're getting into the 50s and 60s, the birth of sci-fi horror. The radiation era. Ah, yes, the atomic age. Thanks to World War II and dropping bombs on on foreign countries, we have this great new thing of uh, mutated, uh, gigantic, ginormous creatures running around everywhere. The giant monsters. Yes, the giant monster era. And, And who could forget some of the greats from that time period? The thing from another world. We got aliens. We got, ooh, they're coming to get us. The thing from another world. Also known a lot just as The Thing, later remade by the great John Carpenter. And then we've got The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Start getting into some of that uh, early Ray Harryhausen stuff. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Can't can't go wrong know, with the stop-motion animation. stop-motion. And The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, you know, really kind of kicked it off for him. And mm-hmm. that really was kind of a, a benchmark in, in the Harryhausen era to start it all off. And, you know, sure, it might be considered maybe a little more fantasy, but again, it's one of those those films that straddles that line yeah. between between fantasy, sci-fi, and horror. You know, I mean, it's certainly terrifying if you're walking down the street and this giant freaking reptile is destroying things. I mean, there's, there's some terror in there. Oh, yeah. I would look at another great film, King Kong. Oh, yeah. Would you consider that a horror movie? Probably not. More fantasy, but there's some very, very big horror elements in there. A mysterious island with a tribe that worships a giant ape. 
Especially, too, you know, that movie came out in 1933, so it was a little before all of this stuff, mm. but um, kind of the precursor to all of that. But there are some moments in that that got cut out after early screenings because they were too horrifying mm-hmm. for audiences of that time. The scenes where he's literally chomping and chewing on people that, on people, that he yeah. picks stomping up. Stomping on, on people, them yeah. and squishing them. Now, these scenes have all been put back in, and we watch them now, and sure, they are may- maybe a little dated because of the effects of the right. time. But, boy, when that thing came out, it had people running from the theater. I have to make a confession. The only reason why I brought up King Kong is because I, I wanted a nice segue to talk about my boy from Japan. Mm. The king of the monsters. The big G. Godzilla. One of the best things to happen in cinema in the 50s was the creation of Godzilla. 1954. Don't look back now because he's just going to get you with his atomic breath. That roar. That tail. Those scales. Ooh. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay. Uh, we're both huge Godzilla fans. We love the entire series of yes. Godzilla films. Every incarnation, except maybe the Roland Emmerich one. Uh, very uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> and even that, there are parts of that that I enjoy. But let me ask you, when it comes to that original film, that very first Godzilla film, which one do you prefer? Gojira, the Japanese version, uh, or Godzilla, the American version with Raymond Burr added into it? Because they are two different films. They are two different films, and I'm probably I'm probably going to get some flack for this, but I prefer the Raymond Burr version. Okay. I prefer the Americanized version simply because when I first was introduced to Godzilla... Hey, Perry Mason, man. You ain't got to say Mason. anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, is that when I was first introduced to those films, the very first Godzilla film I saw was Godzilla 1985. Oh, wow. Which was a direct sequel... To the original Godzilla starring Raymond Burr because they brought Raymond Burr back. He was playing his character again. He was playing the character of Steve Martin, reporter extraordinaire. So watching that and then going back and watching the original Americanized version, you know, the, where they shoved in Raymond Burr's character, it's the nostalgia factor to it. Do I, I own both versions of the movie. Both are great, but I lean more towards the, the Americanized version of it. I think I would probably have to go more towards the Japanese version. Of Um, course you would. (laughs) (laughs) The yin to your yang, always, right? Yeah, I just, uh, I you know, I love Raymond Burr, and I and I think that I probably saw the Raymond Burr cut first. Hmm. You know, when it comes to any kind of a foreign film, I always prefer to to watch the original. I, I feel like even when something is translated and dubbed. So much gets lost in the translation, and I'm sure that that there is a lot lost in translation when it has subtitles, but I feel like at least that's maybe a little truer to what was initially um, desired by the filmmakers. Another great thing that happened as we exit the 50s and enter the 60s was the craze of gimmick horror. If you wanted to see a horror film, you had to go to the theater. What better way to really experience a horror film if you felt like you were a part of it? Enter the great William Castle. William Castle was ahead of his time, definitely. Sadly, I, I really kind of wish that some of these gimmicks would still be around because I would I would definitely enjoy going to the theater a lot more if I felt like I was part of the movie instead of this 
3D stuff that they're doing now. William Castle would actually set things up in a theater to where your seat would buzz or something would fly out of the rafters of the actual theater and, 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 and almost attack you, making you feel like you were a part of the action. He was a showman, I yes. think, first and foremost, um, you know, and he really uh, he really wanted to make sure that going to the movies was an experience. Oh, yeah. And, you know, from the stories that you that you hear and read about, you know, yeah, sure. It sure sounds like it was an experience. Guys in <laughs> guys in rubber suits dressed like whatever the monster was for that particular film, running yeah. up and down the aisles, down the aisles. <laughs> you know, scaring your girlfriend, you know, and making her cling to your arm. I mean, why wouldn't you go to that? And and even even though that they had gimmicks attached to it, some of the films that he was attached to, uh, House on Haunted Hill, yeah, is considered one of the greatest horror films uh, of all time. Not not just of that time, of all time. A lot of people will stick stick by that film as that was creepy as hell, and it still holds up to this day. I mean, you've got uh, the Tingler, you've got Thirteen Ghosts, uh, 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 another film that introduced the. Not really 3D aspect, but a gimmick. And that gimmick was then used when they remade the film back in the early 2000s. And they incorporated it into the actual story of the movie. I wish we had more showmen like William Castle now. I think more people would be going to the theater to enjoy themselves instead of just funneling more money into concession stands. Yeah, I think that that's something that is sorely lacking in uh, in the movie going experience. It is just that an experience, you know. Mm -hmm. Aside from what William Castle was doing, even in the early fifties, going to the movies was all about the experience of going out. You know, you get a short, you get a newsreel, maybe you get a cartoon, you get two movies. You know, you have an intermission. I mean, it was it was a night out, mm. and William Castle certainly made that a much more enjoyable night out. But where that's concerned, that from me is a rant for a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother time. If you want a taste of what William Castle offered to his audiences, there's a great film that came out in the late 90s called Matinee, directed by Joe Dante. And Matinee Starring John Goodman. Starring John Goodman, local boy. Uh, John Goodman plays a Castle-like character who does gimmicks for his films. I definitely recommend it. Uh, we'll put a link to the film so you can get all the information that you need in the show notes at our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. <laughs> if you want to talk about a showman, you can't have a conversation without bringing up Roger Corman. Roger Corman was the quintessential independent filmmaker who could crank out films under budget and I'm talking about a budget of, of, of pennies compared to Hollywood standards nowadays. And Roger Corman did a lot. He, did, he, he, he ran the gambit of, of films. He did dramas, he did comedies, and he did horror. And some of the greatest horror movies that he did were Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Little Shop of Horrors. The original Little Shop of Horrors. With Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Then you've got all of the work that he did adapting the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And the majority of those of those adaptations were done with the the great acting skills of Vincent Price. Local boy, again, local boy Vincent Price. And a lot of those too were also done, you know, the the ones that Corman was doing 
with Price were done under the company of American International Pictures, AIP, Mm -hmm. which really kind of made their name in the 50s and 60s as being this kind of low budget, and in some cases, no budget, horror company. Uh, You know, one that that certainly gets eclipsed by the Universals and the Hammers and and, uh, and the Val Lutons and what have you. Um, And a lot of those Poe films that Corman did were through American International. Well, there's one filmmaker that nobody is going to eclipse at all because when he walks into a room, all eyes are on him, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. I don't think I have to say a lot about Hitchcock. Uh, I can mention some of his his works. Uh, Definitely in the horror genre, Psycho, definitely a horror movie. The Birds, definitely a horror movie. Almost everything that Hitchcock did had elements of suspense, which are needed and and sometimes lacking in today's horror films, but definitely needed in horror movies, suspense. There are some of his films that you wouldn't in any way consider to be horror films, but yet they're so rich in in suspense or in the thriller pool that uh, you can't help but at least mention them when you're talking about horror, Uh, obviously more so than Psycho and Birds. You know, you're talking about movies like Vertigo. Mm. Rope. Rope. Mm. uh, Rear Window, which is, uh, you know, an amazing film. North by Northwest. I mean, come on. It's Alfred Hitchcock. It's Alfred Hitchcock. I, I think it would be pretty damn difficult to find an Alfred Hitchcock film that didn't work on almost every level. Now, we can't get out of the 50s and 60s without mentioning a filmmaker, writer, director, somebody that I admire greatly, somebody that I've always wished that I could work with, the man who is responsible for the modern zombie craze. I'm talking about George A. Romero. I have a lot of respect for George A. Romero. Uh, One of the reasons... And it has nothing to do with zombies, because I love me some zombies. It's the fact that Romero is very, very much like us. He likes making films in his hometown. I don't have to go to Hollywood to make a movie. I can make a movie right here. Watch me do it. And he did several times. I I find a a, a kindred spirit. George A. Romero is my spirit animal. That's your Patronus? Yes. George he, A. Romero is your Patronus? He's my Patronus. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not only the, 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 the zombie films that he's responsible for. I mean, come on. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. A brilliant film ahead of its time, really, when you, when, you, when you think about it. But everything else the man has done, his collaborations with Stephen King. I mean, you put those two together and you've got gold. You absolutely have gold. Now, some people will argue about whether or not Romero's later works can compare to his earlier stuff. I I don't care. I don't care. I love the man. Absolutely love the man. Any interview I can get my hands on, I love listening to his stories. Keep in mind, too, that that Romero, aside uh, aside from hitting everything that you just said, he also was the one that started to revolutionize the genre and filmmaking in different aspects as well. I mean, you know, you're talking about a guy who at the time would push the envelope visually. You know, you're talking about a guy that uh, that said, okay, you've seen a vampire bite someone and you've seen blood trickle down their neck and you've seen blood on the vampire's mouth, 
but have you seen a ghoul rip flesh off of a body? We're going to show you that, for better or worse, you right. know, depending whether or not you even like that kind of stuff. He pushed the envelope, and he showed that stuff. Keep in mind, too, he also created in, and I think I think it has to be a first in the horror genre, he created a film in the 60s with an African-American hero. That was a big deal. It was, <laughs> that's a, a, it was a huge deal. That That's a pretty uh, uh, big, bold, groundbreaking move to do. He fortunately was working with such a low budget and so far under the Hollywood radar that he was able to get away with it. But it, it certainly was a, a chip in that barrier that he helped helped put there. In horror, there are peaks and there are valleys. The circle is always unbroken. And therefore, everything old is new again. And we can thank that to Hammer Studios, the studio across the pond that reinvented the universal monsters to to a certain extent, I I would say. Definitely Dracula and uh, Frankenstein's monster. I myself, I'm not saying I'm not a Hammer fan. I just haven't been exposed to a lot of Hammer's classic films. And I know you have, Jason. Yeah. And this, you know, when it comes to Hammer films, um, I could go on for days and days and probably talk myself out of a voice when it comes to Hammer. I, I <laughs> love them. I grew up with uh, the Hammer films. And not even just the not even just the monsters, you know. I mean, of course, they, they did their, their versions, their remake versions of Dracula mm-hmm. with Christopher Lee and Peter Gushing. And they did their remake versions of Frankenstein with Christopher Lee and Peter Gushing. <laughs> and they did their versions of the monsters. Mummy with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a trend yeah. here. But you know they they did you know they did the Phantom of the Opera their versions of that and they did uh, they had their own werewolf um, you know with Oliver Reed's uh, Curse of the Werewolf. Mm-hmm. And, but there were also so many other great films that they, that Hammer Films would put out at the time that are uh, lesser known and and things that again straddle that line between sci-fi and horror or fantasy and horror, like the Quatermass series. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can find the Quatermass series on DVD, they're great. They're wonderful films, and they really kind of helped kick off Hammer in the early days when when uh, they were just kind of getting started. Yeah, the the Hammer Films, you know, they had a, their own feel they had their own voice i I think the closest thing that modern audiences and when i say modern i mean within the last 25 years i think the closest thing that modern audiences have to be able to watch and say oh that's a hammer film or made in the hammer film style would be the earlier work of tim burton tim burton and and johnny depp both have said that they were heavily influenced by Hammer. Things like Sleepy Hollow, mm. which you watch Sleepy Hollow, and I, I can't find anything in that film that is contrary to Hammer. It it may as well be a Hammer film. Mm. Everything down to the color of the blood. And Hammer was known for their bright cran red blood. <laughs> I mean, it was just... Well, even even the beginning of Sleepy Hollow, you've got a, a, a cameo by Christopher Lee. That's right. That's right. Uh, this might be sacrilege to musical fans and Broadway musical fans. The movie version of Sweeney Todd. I've never seen the play. I don't know how the movie stacks up to the play. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the movie for what it was. But visually, again, another case where this thing could have been made in the 60s by Hammer. It right. looks just like a Hammer film. They they focused on atmosphere and mood and fog 
and the lighting in the trees. And they let a lot of that set a mood so that once the mood was set, you carried that into the story with you as an audience member. And then they would show whatever they want or pull back where they needed to. But they already, they had you from the very beginning because they set a tone. A right. tone that I would I would even argue to say today is uh, has become synonymous with Halloween and horror in general because it is it is so iconic. And let us not forget about the boobs. And yes, and they also pushed the envelope as well. Can't mention Hammer without boobs. A lot of big-breasted women becoming vampires, and <laughs> and uh, a lot of them shedding that top at some point or another. It was basically, it's like if we can't get you with the atmosphere and the mood and the tone and, and the, the story, and the... we're gonna give you the bright red gore and boobs. And really, is there anything else that you would want? Not really. No. <laughs> Uh, and then it was the 70s. The 70s was the resurgence of everything that had come before. We're going to bring it back, and we're going to give it to you repackaged, and you're not going to understand what the hell you're looking at. And we got some of the best directors and storytellers and filmmakers in this era who are still, most of them, making films today. People like John Carpenter. Wes Craven. Uh, to- Toby Hooper. Clive Barker. <laughs> Sam Raimi. Ridley Scott. David Cronenberg. Sean S. Cunningham. Joe Dante. And of course, the one that uh, transcended into general filmmaking and became one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, uh, the, the man who can do anything. Pretty much. Do you think that Spielberg considers Jaws a horror movie? I don't know. I honestly don't know how he would view it. I, I certainly would say, again, it straddles that line. It's a giant monster movie. You it know? it is if, a monster movie. If you're going to consider uh, Godzilla or Kong or Them or the Deadly Mantis or the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, if you're going to look at movies like that of these giant creatures that are terrorizing people, well, Jaws is pretty much the best of the bunch. Yeah, so, nature runs amok. Again, I I guess you could probably have a shark that that was that size. I mean, hell, you consider Cujo to be a horror story. Cujo is... All Cujo is is shark, is jaws on land, if you think about it. With a rabid dog, yeah. Yeah. With all of those great film directors and writers... They, 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 they took all the old, all the old uh, cliches, all the old genres, and they shook them up and they made them new again. Things like occult horror, monster films, and the slasher genre all came out of the seventies. Uh, uh, things uh, were the occult. My, my personal downfall that if I watch a movie that's got ghosts or demons or the devil, anything like that hinted. I'm gonna get a little apprehensive because that's that's my uh, that stuff can scare me because I believe in it. I have I have a a, a belief in that stuff. Uh, things like Rosemary's Baby and The great Exorcist. Oh, oh, both great films. Yeah. When when you've got when when the devil is involved, <laughs> Do, does it get more horrifying than the devil? Whether you believe that the devil is a real thing or not, whether you are. Uh, of of one religion or another, regardless, the idea, the concept, the concept behind of the devil, what the devil is, we don't believe in Frankenstein's monster, but yet we we consider that a horror monster because it's a horror monster. Yeah. Well, whether you believe or not, the devil, you don't get much more horrifying than that. And when you're talking about the devil, 
you can't forget the omen. Because when you've got the devil in the guise of a tiny boy, that's even more horrifying. Put the dog down, Damien. <laughs> it's all for you, Damien. <laughs> uh, little, little kids creep me out anyway, but when they're the spawn of Satan, that's even worse. <laughs> it's even worse for me. And even even without the devil, you get these evil demonic creatures. You had films like the Amityville Horror, The Shining, all of the Evil Dead series. Yeah, uh, Poltergeist, another another Spielberg collaboration with, with Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper. Toby, yeah. Toby Hooper. And and even even Gorefest like Hellraiser. When you've got these creatures coming at you from hell or a hell ish plane of existence it, it, it it's unnerving and this next generation of directors and filmmakers they they brought back the monster movie they brought back the monster movie whether it was could probably maybe kind of happen in real life or totally out of uh, left field i mean you have films uh, jaws I mean, jaws is even by today's film standards that movie stands up i have to watch that movie at least once a year yeah, same here. And you know, every time I do, I notice something I've never noticed before. Really? I think it's yeah, I would I would certainly pick it as one of the 10 greatest movies of, of all time. time. I I would totally agree with you there. But then you also look at uh, uh, one of the greatest rip-offs of Jaws, Piranha. Yeah, sure. The 1978 <laughs> version of Piranha, directed by Joe Dante, who we've mentioned quite a bit so far on this show. Uh Steven Spielberg himself has even said it's the greatest rip-off of his film ever. Joe Dante also directed Gremlins, 1984 Gremlins, produced by Steven Spielberg. Horror film or Christmas movie? You decide. You decide. <laughs> Me personally, it's a horror film that's set in Christmas time. It, it is a horror. The, the little creatures running around killing people, they're killing people, man. That's not a family movie. It is a, It is absolutely a horror film. It's a horror <laughs> film that I watch every year at Christmas. Every year at Christmas. <laughs> And then, and then they brought back the classic monsters as well in different versions. You got the Howling, American Werewolf in London. Uh, the greatest werewolf movie ever. The greatest werewolf movie ever. The first horror movie I ever saw was oh, wow. An American Werewolf okay. in London. Oh, yes. Fond memories of American Werewolf in London. But then you also have got like the resurgence of, of the vampires with Lost Boys and Fright Night. Oh, two, Fright Night. Two of the best vampire films of the 80s i'm sorry i'm more of a fright night guy i think fright night's better than lost boys i know there are a lot of people out there that would argue with me jason boy um would you like to argue with me <laughs> when don't i want to argue with you <laughs> actually yes i might end up boy i don't know i don't know that i could pick i think for me picking between fright night and lost boys would be like it'd be sophie's choice you know i don't know if i could if i could pick which one uh um, ah. chris sarandon as as a vampire, I mean, come on, that's freaking awesome. Who I met, by the way, once when I was living in L.A. And I is he just as intimidating as he looks in the films? Well, I'll tell you a little side story here. I was one of those guys that had no problem going up and talking to a celebrity when I would meet them or run into them in uh, my time out in California. Mm -hmm. Chris Sarandon was one of the very few people I could not bring myself to talk to <laughs> because he's freaking fright night, man. <laughs> I he was probably a hell of a nice guy, but I just could not bring myself to go up to him. Dude, I don't blame you. I mean, he's I've seen him in other things. He's not he doesn't look all that child's play. He was in child's play. Sure. He wasn't all that intimidating in child's play, but he's Jerry Dandridge. He's Jerry freaking Dandridge. I'm sorry. 
I'm going to give him a wide berth. I'm going to go. I'm going to point. I'm going to stare. I'm going to squeal like a little girl, and I'm going to let him go about his, his business because <laughs> I'm afraid he might bite me. <laughs> Who could forget about the creation of the slasher film? Started in the '70s and hasn't stopped since. With films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974. Oh, that film. I will tell you this. I was definitely too young at the time that I saw that movie to watch that movie. And I don't blame this on my mother, but it is kind of her fault. Because when I'm going to tell her you said uh, that. You, you, you go ahead and tell her. <laughs> you don't tell her. You shut up. <laughs> I was left alone with, uh, with her boyfriend's daughter and her friend being babysat. And this was a, a film that was placed on the television while I'm while I'm being babysat, and I was enthralled, man. I didn't know what I was watching. I'm like seven or eight years old. Oh wow! I don't know what I'm seeing, and that's the great thing about the movie. It's not. There's nothing gory about it. There's no buckets of blood and body parts flying everywhere. It's a cerebral horror film. Sure. Yeah. You know, Hooper again, an amazing director. Um, who really understands how to use a movie to affect the psychology of its audience yeah. and, um, and you know, forces you to imagine what you're seeing, even though you're not actually seeing it. And, and you know, it's, it's very much like Psycho, which I guess you could maybe consider is the precursor to the slasher, possibly. Yeah. But, you know, it's that same thing if people thought it was so bloody when it came out. And really, you it's just see not. a little bit of chocolate syrup yeah. run down the drain, and that's about it. Yeah. Toby Hooper does the same thing. Now, of course, you see a little bit more because you're talking about something from 10 years later, and they're mm. pushing the envelope for Well, it. yeah. But nothing compared it to what you see now. It was the atmosphere and the mood, and, and it just felt... Like you were watching a documentary and not a movie, yet there was no blood. Very well, very little. There was blood, but not blood as we know it today in right. horror cinema. Right. And then you've got films like Halloween. My favorite. Your fa your your favorite out of all the the quote unquote slashers. Is out of all of the slashers, I think it's my favorite series of movies. Maybe not my favorite monster, but my my favorite series of movies. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm 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 a big Halloween fan, but I'm sorry. If I'm going with a slasher, I'm going with Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's my favorite monster. Boy, you know your, you could, your favorite monster right there? <laughs> he's my favorite monster from the slashers. If you could put Freddy Krueger into a into a Halloween movie, I'd be golden. I'd oh. be set. <laughs> we did have the good fortune of having Freddy versus Jason. Yep. The Friday the 13th series lasted longer than the Halloween series and the in the the Nightmare series, sadly, because they started jumping the shark. <laughs> they started jumping the shark. You know, I don't know if that's necessarily true. If they jump the shark, I heard a quote one time on um, on the TV show Supernatural. Uh, I think I know where you're going with this one. <laughs> that that basically said that uh, it's technically not really jumping the shark if you never come back down. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what they did with Jason. You know, they they started to jump the shark, but man, I mean, he ended up in space for crying out he loud. He did so. end up in. In space. We well, you know what that's where that's where we're going to ask the audience what is your favorite slasher monster? Is it Leatherface? Did you like do you like Michael Myers? Are you a fan of Jason Voorhees and the hockey shtick? Are you are you a claw lover? Freddy Krueger? Let us know. Head on over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the little web form on the right hand side and let us know. Who is your favorite slasher movie monster? 
And that brings us to modern day or modern day esque, really. Horror took a gigantic turn in the 90s, for better or for worse, depending on what you look at it, because you know, you have the the ratings board and and oh, there's so many great horror films and so many bad horror films that could have been better had they not been meddled with by the MPAA and being edited to death to tone down the violence. A horror movie is supposed to be violent. Uh, but again, remember the late 80s, early 90s, you get this whole, the, the whole mentality that horror movies and, and, and violent video games and all this other crap is what's wrong with the kids of today. And it's making them go out there and do horrible things to each other. I call BS. That's just my personal opinion. I think it has more to do with the lack of parenting and have nothing really to do with movies. But again, that's a soapbox for another time. But the modern horror, we did get some really great stuff. Uh, uh, like like Seven. Seven is definitely one of the great horror films of our time. Yeah, great one. My favorite, Scream, and and its series of copycats, you know, starting with uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer and, oh. and going on and on and on. Well, that whole series, the whole Scream series, uh, if you look at it as a whole, uh, you know what? Thank you, Wes Craven. I, you, you, yeah. you, gave us, you gave us something. I like all four of them, end. even the bad ones. Even the bad ones or the bad moments sure. from, from each of them. Uh, and then you got the, again, you want to try to do Jaws, but you can't do Jaws, so what are you going to do? You're going to do Anaconda. <laughs> and let's not forget what Anaconda was a precursor to of today with things like uh, Sharktopus oh. and Sharknado and uh, uh, Boa. shark and, attack. Yeah. <laughs> Mega Croc versus uh, uh, Robo yeah, right. Shark or whatever. <laughs> but let us not forget, you also get films like The Blair Witch Project. Sure. And the Blair Witch Project uh, gave us uh, that whole found footage thing. Uh, thanks a lot, Blair Witch. Um, you know, there are films like The Sixth Sense, which built upon the ideas that the Blair Witch Project brought back of, of the less you show, the better, and then perfected it, I think. Well, I remember I, remember, I actually saw The Sixth Sense in the theater, and I was lucky enough that nobody spoiled the ending. I won't spoil the ending here, just in case you've lived under a rock for the last If you're years. one of the three people in One the of the world. three people who don't know the secret twist at the end, I won't spoil it here. But definitely go check it out if you're into the whole spooky ghost story movies. And, and, and again, Resurgence. We talk about Resurgence in, in our modern era. 28 Days Later. I don't consider it a zombie film. I consider it an outbreak film, an infection film. I'm with you on that. However, however you and I end up considering it, nonetheless, it did revive the zombie genre. All in my mind, all it really did was allow people, allow people in Hollywood to say, "Hey, we can make zombies run," and that led to the remake of Dawn of the Dead, which, in that, zombies ran, right. which made it even more frightening. Personally speaking, 28 Weeks Later is a much better film than 28 Days Later, but that's a podcast for another time. Thank you, Danny Boyle, then, I guess. <laughs> uh, don't forget about Saw, which technically kind of ushered in the whole um, torture porn ah, yes. uh, genre of filmmaking, even though Saw, the first one itself, is a brilliant film. Br we saw that together yes, in, we did. in the theater. Yes, uh, we did. You, me, and my mother. Yep. Uh, I remember that. Did you stick around for the whole uh, series? Not for the films. whole series, no. I stopped after the third one. 
Uh, most people would be smart if they stopped after the third one. After the third one, they got a little confusing. Uh, I, I of course, am a glutton for punishment, so I stuck around for the whole series. Of course you are. Of course. Uh, and I will say, as a whole, we should have stopped at three. <laughs> <laughs> but, again, there are good parts in, in even the bad films, including the return of Carrie Ellis in the final Saw film. So a nice book and from the original to to the end. Ah, but is it, it the final? I have heard that there is possibly a new Saw film coming. Oh, I, oh. I don't know if that's true or not. That's that's. Let's hope rumor. that that's r- rumor control. We'll find out. If we hear anything about a new Saw film, we'll let you know at our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. But just like Saw... Another very popular horror, modern day horror uh, franchise is uh, the Paranormal Activity films. Yeah, which took the whole found footage idea that was, uh, you know, set up by Blair Witch Project and and really just ran with it. And even there are some parts where it did it better. It, it, there are are parts of the Paranormal sure. Activity series I, I that I that. enjoyed. Others, it was the same old, same old, but then there yeah. were some times where it would, woo! And then there was uh, things like Zombieland. You know, there was this, this again, resurgence of horror films that leaned on the side of comedy. Horror films that weren't afraid to throw humor into it. Things like Zombieland. Uh, Shaun of Shaun the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, definitely, who um, came before Zombieland. Right, yeah, right. But, you know, that be- that has become a, a, a very big thing. as Horror comedy, or at least more comedy in your horror. Right. Yeah, they don't they don't treat the monsters like jokes. You know, they they treat the situations in maybe humorous ways, which that's not a new concept. That goes again all the way back to the Universal films with the Abbott and Costello Meet the Monsters series. No, definitely, definitely. Well, I mean, once you get to a certain point in a in a franchise, you, you have to go into the the comedy aspect. Unless you're James Wan, and you do films like the Insidious series and The Conjuring, which to me, <laughs> I've not been frightened by a ghost story like I was with The Conjuring uh, since uh, The Exorcist. Yeah, I think the The Conjuring is probably the scariest film I've seen in the last twenty five years, hands down. Um, we watched that one together too, didn't we? I um, I ended up buying it. I and uh, we we watched that at the uh, the in the old home theater. Yeah, yeah. And it's still, uh, my wife, it still scares her. She cannot watch that movie without me there. She refuses to because it, it scares her too much. Uh, yeah, my, uh, my, my girlfriend was with us when we watched it, and to this day she says that uh, when Halloween comes around, she'll watch certain horror films with me. She doesn't want to be anywhere near the apartment when I watch Conjuring. She just wow. doesn't want to have anything to do with that Just film. wait till part two comes out uh, this I know, summer. I know, I'm going to have to glue her eyes open and make her watch it. <laughs> And you've got that high point right there with with films like The Conjuring and the Insidious series. But then, sadly, you also have the regurgitation of the remakes and the reboots. Some of them, most of them, are crap. And then you get a couple of gems here and there. And and that's really what horror cinema has, has amounted to. You get some really good movies here and there. But really, sadly, it boils down to... It's probably just another remake that's been made PG-13 and watered down to get more butts in the in the theater. And let's face it, you know, I mean, of course it's going to be a remake because when you really boil it all down and when you really think about it, everything actually is a remake of where of where it all started with yeah. the Grimm and Shelley and yeah. Stoker and Larue and I can't forget Larue. Don't can't, forget, don't we got forget a, Larue. Petition on Larue. 
course it's going to be a rehash. The The trick is, can they present it to us in a new way? Right. Can they wrap it in a new bow? And, you know, some do and most don't. It, it all owes its its roots back to back to those early stories. Back to the early stuff. And it, all, it comes full circle. And that's where we ask you, what, do, what did we miss? We just went through a whole mess of literary giants and cinema gold. You tell us, what did we miss? Head on over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the web form on the right. Let us know, what did we miss? Is there something that we talked about that you want us to talk about more? Was there something we kind of just glossed over that you'd like to hear a whole episode devoted to? We'll do it. We've got no shame whatsoever. We'll do it for you. Like I said, head on over to twoguystalkinghorror.com and let us know. Well, this was a crash course in horror, but like any good horror film, this was only the first installment. That's right, Jason. There will be a part two. Always got to have a sequel because let's face it, baby, these days, it's all about the sequel. It's all about the sequel. So... Until next time, I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, one of your hosts. And I'm Jason Contini, your other host. Reminding you, don't be afraid of the dark. Be afraid of what's in the dark. Congratulations. You've survived this episode of Two Guys Talking Horror. We hope you were entertained and informed by our program. Take what you have learned and pass it on to your family and friends. It may just save their lives someday. Have questions? Comments? Suggestions for a future episode? Visit our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Click anywhere on the right-hand side and fill out our short web form. It's the easiest way to interact with the hosts. Beware of monsters, creatures, and all things that go bump in the night. And keep telling yourself, it's only a podcast. It's It's only only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast.